Welcome to the Article to Audio podcast brought to you by the NAC team. NAC stands for Negotiation and Conflict. NAC, N-A-C, is made up of a team of scholars who are passionate about the teaching, research, and practice of negotiation and conflict management. We offer you this podcast series to highlight the work of global academic thought leaders who have a knack for negotiating and managing conflict. The Article to Audio podcast interviews authors who have published research on negotiation and conflict management that advances theory and informs practice in the field. I'm Michael Gross. I teach in the Department of Management, College of Business at Colorado State University, and I am your host for today. Today, our guest is Amira Schiff. Amira is a professor and the director of the Conflict Management Resolution and Negotiation Graduate Program at the Bar-Ilan University. As a researcher in international conflict resolution, she specializes in the intricacies of conflict management and the dynamics of peace processes. Her influential work, particularly, particularly the article, Reaching a Mutual Agreement, Readiness Theory and Coalition Building in the ACAG process earned the prestigious Negotiation and Conflict Management Research Award for the best paper in 2014. Dr. Schiff has a prolific publication record contributing to key journals in the field such as NCMR, which is the Negotiation and Conflict Management Research Journal, the International Journal of Conflict Management, the International Negotiation Journal. Her book, Negotiating Intractable Conflicts, Readiness Theory Revisited, published by Rutledge in 2021, further cements her status as a leading voice in conflict resolution studies. We will, we will be discussing her article, Readiness Theory, a new approach to understanding mediated pre-negotiation and negotiation processes Leading to Peace Agreements, appearing in Negotiation and Conflict Management Research, Volume 14, Number 1, pages 21 to 39. Amira, your article is timely and compelling. You present two main theoretical strands which suggest causal explanations for the shifts in the de-escalation dynamics of conflicts in which parties that have been unwilling to sit together at the negotiation table ultimately agreed to do so and eventually signed an agreement. Can you share with our listeners a personal story that brought you to this study? Thank you, Michael, for having me here to talk about my research. Well, regarding your question, it's something that I believe resonates with the core of every scholar's research journey. You know, it's all about personal curiosity about the phenomena. In my case, as an Israeli living in a region where the Arab-Israeli conflict has been ongoing for more than seven decades, I was naturally drawn, you could say, to questions about the factors and mechanisms that lead parties in this conflict, initially so resistant to even the idea of negotiation to eventually sit down enamor out peace agreements to resolve their long-standing rivalries. As an international conflict resolution scholar, I often cite the transformative Israeli-Egyptian peace agreement. This agreement is like a cornerstone example that demonstrates the validity 
of what we call the ripeness theory and what I call in my research the ripeness strength, which has since the 80s dominated the discourse in international conflict resolution about when it's the right time to start negotiations. But you see, when I really started to dive deeper, exploring more case studies, take for example, the Jordan-Israel peace agreement in 1994, or uh, the peace process in Aceh in Sudan, and even the more recent Abraham peace accords between Israel and the UAE, I began to notice a slightly different pattern emerging. It's clear that there are many critical elements that need to come together to move the peace process forward. This includes ensuring that the parties involved demonstrate the necessary flexibility to reach an agreement. What this pattern really highlights is the importance of understanding the right timing, having a deep grasp of each party's motivations and pressures, and recognizing the crucial role intermediaries play. They are key in facilitating open communication, fostering a sense of trust and pinpointing those unique windows of opportunity where all sides are more receptive to negotiation. This in essence is what can shift these intractable conflicts towards a more hopeful resolution. And you know, I was indeed fortunate to come across Professor Dean Pruitt's readiness theory during my research. At the time I was immersing myself in my study, this theory hadn't been widely explored beyond Pruitt's pioneering work. It's essentially a further restatement and elaboration of the ripeness theory, but with some unique features that make it an incredible, valuable analytical framework. It offers a new perspective for exploring the origins of peace agreements. Oh, okay. All right, well, thank you very much. So tell us, um, what are these two theoretical strands and how does each inform negotiation processes that lead to a peace agreement? So in my study, I explored two main theoretical constructs that are pivotal in conflict resolution field, especially when we are talking about the shift from non-negotiation to peace agreements in intractable conflicts. First up, we've got the ripeness strand. This strand consists of three sub-theories outlined by Bill Zartman. It's anchored in the original ripeness theory, which is all about pinpointing the right moment to initiate negotiations. The core idea here revolves around the concept of a mutually hurting stalemate and perceived way out. This is where both parties recognize they can't win, they're incurring heavy costs, and thus see negotiation as the most viable way out. It's about sizing the critical moment when both sides understand that continuing the conflict just isn't worth it anymore. But here's an important nuance. While this ripeness theory has been a primary framework in conflict resolution for deciding when to start negotiations, it does have its limitations. 
these limitations become particularly evident in asymmetrical conflicts or scenarios where third party involvement plays a significant role in processes that lead the conflict parties to embark on formal negotiations. Then there is the second theory in the ripeness strand, which focuses on soft stalemate and turning points. This is more about pre-negotiation dynamics in internal asymmetric conflicts. The third part of this strand is the push and pull theory, which takes the basics of ripeness and looks at mutually enticing opportunities to explain how negotiations can successfully conclude. But here is a critical point. While these theories within the ripeness strand outline necessary elements for starting negotiations or reaching an agreement in negotiations, they don't always work together. They're kind of mutually exclusive. So for example, the ripeness theory effectively explains what motivates parties to initiate formal negotiations in those really tough knowing situations where both sides are just at a stalemate, but it falls short in shedding light on scenarios where at least one party isn't feeling that deadlock. That's where other factors come into play. Things like perceived threats, rising costs, opportunities, and especially the role of third party engagement. This is a limitation for those looking to understand when and how to pursue negotiations, especially when the mutually hurting stalemate condition isn't quite here. Like what we saw in the Israeli Jordan peace process in the early 90s and even in the Abraham Accords in the Israeli Arab conflict. And that is where the readiness trend, which is based on readiness theory, makes its grand entrance. It offers a unified analytical framework that goes beyond the separate theories in the ripeness trend. This readiness framework focuses on the complex dynamics and various causal factors that drive the progression towards peace agreements. Now, the original readiness theory by Pruitt hints on two psychological variables, motivation and optimism. Both are key and they need to be present to some extent for any conciliatory action to happen. This theory, especially when applied to the negotiation process, provides a more nuanced understanding of the dynamics and forces that propel parties towards peace agreements. It even incorporates the role of third parties, which is often a game changer in these situations. All right. Well, thank you very much. You might have already uh, addressed the next question I wanted to ask you, but if you wanted to tell us more about the main arguments of your study, or do you feel like you've talked to us about that? Yeah. The main argument of my study, which I find really fascinating, is about showcasing the value of what I call a readiness trend in understanding the complexities of mediated negotiations that lead to peace agreements. Now, what this trend does is to look at the multiple factors and dynamics that influence parties' 
to not just sit at the negotiation table, but also to reach a consensus and mutual understanding. Let's say we take a couple of case studies where third parties played a crucial role in bringing adversaries to sit at the, the table and sign peace agreement. What my study does is apply readiness theory to these scenarios to demonstrate how this theory as a comprehensive analytical framework help us grasp the complex dynamics at play. It's not just identifying these dynamics, it's about understanding them in a way that contributes to our overall knowledge of international negotiations. You see, the readiness theory strand is quite unique. Unlike the ripeness strand, which many are familiar with, the readiness strand digs deeper it specifies multiple antecedents or factors and movements leading to negotiation and eventual agreement. It's like having a more elaborate set of filters to process and understand these complex situations. The readiness strand provides a more nuanced approach, strength provides a more nuanced approach, suggesting that the factors leading to negotiation don't always apply equally to both sides involved. This aspect is incredibly useful, not just for researchers trying to decode the complexity of conflict resolution across different historical cases, but also in preventive diplomacy scenarios, like what we saw, for instance, in 2007 in Kenya's crisis de-escalation. Another key point about the readiness strand is how it uses variables. These variables describe the dynamics that convince parties to move from a unilateral approach to a bilateral negotiation track and towards agreement. This approach is instrumental in tracking changes over time, understanding how conflicts transform, and comparing these variables across different cases. This is quite different from the ripeness trend and its sub-theories which tend to focus more on conditions and states and don't really allow for monitoring these changes throughout the pre-negotiation and negotiation process. And the third crucial aspect of the readiness trend is its integrated approach. It's more streamlined compared to ripeness strand. Readiness trend uses the same variables to explain both the initiation of negotiation and the progress towards an agreement. This unified approach makes readiness trend a powerful tool in understanding and navigating the complex world of conflict resolution and peace negotiations. You employ two case studies in your study. How did you choose the case study approach? Well, Michael, Understanding how we reach peace agreements is like piecing together a complex puzzle. And that's exactly where my research comes in. I chose the case study approach because it's like zooming in with a magnifying glass to see every detail. First, let's talk depth. Imagine you're looking at a beautiful complex tapestry. From afar, it's nice but it's only when you get up close that you see the individual threads. That's what case study research is like. It lets us see 
dive deep into the unique patterns and insights of specific conflict resolution scenarios, which broader studies might just gloss over. Then there's establishing cause and effects. It's like being a detective, tracing the sequence of events to understand what led to what. In my research, this was crucial to untangle the complex web of actions and reactions in international negotiations. Now, about theory formation and hypothesis generation. This isn't just about confirming what we already know about readiness theory based on Pruitt's studies. It's about forging new paths. My research didn't just look at the concept of readiness to negotiate. It explored the readiness to reach an agreement, charting new territory in understanding the role and efficacy of international mediation. The case studies I chose, the peace process in Aceh and Sudan, were like gold mines for learning. There were scenarios where third parties played a key role in pushing parties towards agreement, providing rich insights applicable to a broader context of peace negotiations in tractable conflicts. Analyzing key variables was like dissecting the reason behind crucial decisions, shining a light on the often enigmatic process of international negotiations. Finally, while my study focused on two specific cases, its lessons are far reaching. It's not about those cases, but about drawing broader conclusions applicable across similar scenarios globally. In a nutshell, the case study approach allowed me to provide a nuanced, comprehensive view of this complex subject, drawing broader lessons from significant peace processes that resolved long-lasting conflicts. It's like giving us a new lens to view how we approach conflict resolution on the world stage. Very nice. Thank you. So tell us about your analysis of these two case studies in terms of what were your key findings? In my research, I delved into two fascinating case studies, each culminating in peace accords in 2005, and I used these to test the efficacy of the readiness trend in explaining the unfolding events that led to peace agreements in these two cases. First case, Acha, Indonesia. Here, the Indonesian government and the free Acha movement, after decades of violent conflict, reached a peace agreement mediated by Marti Atisari and backed by the international community. This peace process, which ended 30 years of conflict, was efficient, taking just seven months. Second case, Sudan. This involved talks between the government of Sudan and the Sudan People's Liberation Movement representing, Sudan, representing South Sudan. This negotiation, lasting over two years and mediated by General Lazaro Sambio, ended the 22-year civil war, paving the way for South Sudan's independence. Now, now, the crux of my study focused on these questions. What brought these parties to the negotiation table? What drove them toward agreement? And what role did third parties played throughout these stages. The findings highlighted the multifaceted 
nature of the readiness strand. It's like a detailed map that shows not just the route to the negotiation table, but also the journey towards an agreement. In both cases, I observed how various factors like the party's cost benefit calculations and third party facilitation dynamically interacted and shifted parties' stances towards negotiation and agreement. Interestingly, readiness theory, which is traditionally used, which is traditionally used to explain why parties initiate negotiations has shown its value in my study for understanding how concessions are made and final agreements are reached. It's like having a Swiss army knife in the toolbox of conflict resolution, versatile and practical. This theory helps us decode the complexities of how third parties alongside pressure and incentives shape the political stance of conflicting parties towards negotiation and agreement. This kind of multi-causal and dynamic analysis, considering gradual shifts in the same variables throughout the negotiation process, demonstrates the adaptability and depth of readiness theory. It equips both researchers and practitioners with a multifaceted lens to understand and facilitate peaceful resolutions in conflicts that seem insurmountable. Well, I, it sounds very empowering and very powerful, your key findings. Um, something, I don't know, that we can all take with us um, to be aware of when we're in our own disagreements. So with that, what practical advice would you give our listeners based on these key findings? What are the takeaways um, that are valuable to all of us? Well, Michael, one of the key takeaways for my research, especially for those involved in mediation or interested in conflict resolution, is the crucial role of third parties in peace processes. Now, let's break down what this means in practical terms based on my findings from the Aceh and Sudan cases. First, Size the moment. In both cases, mediators and the international community saw an opportunity and took it. They understood the adversary situation and used this to influence their decision-making. So the lesson here is about timing and understanding the context deeply. Once we identify that perfect moment, the next critical step is cultivating motivation and optimism. My research demonstrated how essential third party involvement is in fostering hope and belief in positive outcomes through negotiations. This implies that as mediators, it's crucial for us to nurture optimism and show the conflicting parties that there is indeed light at the end of the tunnel. Once hope is kindled, the mediator's role evolves to influence perceptions and, and cost-benefit calculations. Third parties play the smart game by shaping how the adversaries saw their options. They made them realize that negotiation was more beneficial than continuing conflict. This is about understanding what drives each party and using that knowledge to steer them towards the negotiation table. 
After shaping how each side sees their options, the next step is to maintain and intensify pressure. This doesn't mean coercion, but rather apply consistent pressure to keep the parties focused on the goal. In both Aceh and Sudan, this pressure was key in extracting concessions and eventually reaching an agreement. Once the parties are committed to the process, the next critical step is to craft a resolving formula. It's not just about bringing the parties to the table. It's about actively helping them find solutions that align with their interests. Third parties, in my case studies, didn't just facilitate talks. They were instrumental in piecing together the final agreement. Having helped formulate Having helped formulate a potential solution, we must not overlook the importance of trust or the lack of it. In situations where mutual trust is high, like in my case studies, third parties' pressure can be a game changer. It can push the sides to realize that the cost of continuing the conflict is higher than negotiating. In summary, for anyone involved in mediating conflicts, especially intractable ones, the key is to be proactive, insightful, and strategic. Understanding the party's motivations, applying the right amount of pressure, and guiding them towards mutually beneficial solutions can make all the difference in turning prolonged conflict into path towards peace. Wow, it sounds like that the third parties are sort of a guardrail, making sure that the two disputing parties um, don't sort of um, that stay focused on what the purpose of getting together at the table is, making sure that they're in places where they're leading to an agreement and addressing solutions and coming up with solutions and not getting off the path towards that. Would that be another way of summarizing it? <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, Michael, exactly, yes. And it sounds like trust is really important, too. Is that trust between the two parties or also trust uh, that the two parties have for the mediator or both? Both, but mainly trust between the two parties. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, this is really, really valuable insightful, and I thank you for your time today and all the information from your research. Thank you. Thank you so much, Michael, for having me on your podcast. Well, thank you. Um, enjoy your day. Thank you to our guest today for an engaging conversation. For more information about this episode, we hope that you'll check out our podcast notes on the NAC website at www.negotiationandconflictteam.com. That's one word, negotiationandconflictteam.com. There you will find additional sources and links to materials cited in this episode. On behalf of our podcast team, Ming Hong Tsai, Laura Reese, Jennifer Parlamis, Michael Gross, that's me, and Deborah Tsai. Thank you for listening. Please tell a friend about our podcast, and we hope you'll join us next time for another fascinating discussion that brings us from article to audio.